Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro on voting rights, build back better, and what the infrastructure rescue will bring. One of the things that was so critically important to me was a child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan. And you are very concerned about children and their health. It is the child tax credit that I believe was addressing the issues of poverty. Now here's Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter on Conversations on Healthcare. There's not one American during the past two years of the pandemic who hasn't been affected by the leadership and decisions made by our next guest. She's the chair of the Appropriations Committee of the United States House of Representatives. It holds the power of the purse. Her policymaking has meant we've had the resources needed to face COVID-19, the biggest economic and health crisis in our country's history. Representative DeLauro's leadership has resulted in Congress passing the largest governmental response the country has ever seen to rescue individuals, the economy, and the healthcare system. But we know her first as our local member of the House and a passionate advocate for community health. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us again. And right when your insights are really needed, let's start with asking you to share the latest details about the spread of the Omicron variant and the responses that have come from both the House and the Senate and the Biden administration. Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be with uh, the two of you, with Mark and Margaret, and thank you. And thank you so much for what you do uh, at Community Health Center, what you've been doing now. Uh, I treasure the working relationship that we have had over the years. Uh, You all have been in the vanguard of making sure that whatever the crisis is, uh, that you are uh, ahead of it and on top of it. Uh, That's really extraordinary. So we are very, very fortunate to have uh, you and the the health center and the work that you do statewide. By God, I can go back to uh, working (laughs) opioids and uh, and all of the, uh, because you and I both know that it's the health centers uh, where we're looking at primary care for over 23 million people in in this country. I go back to the American Rescue Plan, uh, or or even before that, to the CARES uh, plan. Uh, As soon as the the pandemic hit. What we tried to do at every step of the way was to be able to use federal resources in order to address which was the most significant economic and health crisis that we faced in a generation. And what we did in CARES 1, CARES 2, the American Heroes Bill last year with the American Rescue Plan was to provide the necessary funding so that we could look at research, we could look at vaccine development, we could look at therapeutics and how we were going to begin to distribute uh, testing. And we know the problems that we had early on with testing, PPE, and all of those. So the effort to try to overcome all of that. And, and at that juncture, we were working in areas where we had bipartisan cooperation with these bills, a significant amount of federal resources. With the American Rescue Plan, that was $1.9 trillion, looking at uh, what we needed to do about making sure uh, that we had the wherewithal to get vaccines distributed, shots in the arm for for people, uh, setting up the kinds of uh, clinics, the kinds of things that you all did, mobile clinics, the places where people could uh, really get access to what they needed. In addition, the amount of economic support that went out at, at that time uh, was incredible uh, for businesses who could not have survived without the help. Hospitals 
healthcare centers. And, and this is the proper role of government. There was a great article many years ago uh, by a, a, a reporter named Michael Ignatieff, and he was writing about Katrina. And he said the government is a covenant with the citizens of this country and that we have an obligation that when the challenges are so overwhelming that government steps in. And he, he said when the levees broke, that that covenant was broken uh, and we needed to have the full force of the federal government. Well, when this crisis began, the levees broke. People could not handle all of this on their own. So the federal government stepped in to do what was necessary. One of the things that was so critically important to me was a child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan. And look, you are very concerned about children and their health. It is the child tax credit that I believe was addressing the issues of poverty. And you know how poverty affects children. Mm -hmm. The food, their nutrition, their education, their health, what happens in their homes, uh, so that the child tax credit, I believe, has met the need, uh, and we got to continue to fight for it to be extended. Uh, and we've seen already that 50% of kids being lifted out of poverty in November, 3.8 million kids. The hunger numbers have declined. That all of this is so critically important. And then you look at Build Back Better, which we are trying to get uh, over the finish line with the kinds of resources that are necessary for healthcare, uh, the president just setting up sites in schools where we can test uh, so we can keep kids uh, in school. It, it's critical that we do that. But the Build Back Better expands Medicare benefits. Uh, it reduces drug costs. We're doing this in our in appropriations of uh, providing $1.8 billion uh, to uh, community health centers, $50 million to support school-based clinics. Uh, if I think about it and you catalog, reaching back, you know, as the pandemic started to now, that look at the way have we have almost doubled, tripled federal resources uh, to address the, the, the issue, trying to create a, a public health care system with the infrastructure that it needs. We knew that that collapsed during the beginning part of the pandemic. And in appropriations bills, I'm looking at how we buttress the public health infrastructure system. That has to do with you. It has to do with the modernization of data. We're, and we're looking at billions of dollars in this case. So whether it was the beginning, whether it was Delta and now Omicron, there is the full mm -hmm. force of federal resources to try to address this healthcare crisis and the accompanying economic crisis uh, with it. But there has been an extraordinary amount of work that's been done. And oftentimes the word isn't getting out. Well, Congresswoman, thank you for your kind words about our community health center. But as you know, there are 1,400 community health centers in the United States serving millions of people across the country. And you are the co-chair of the House Community Health Center Caucus. Right. So you know uh, very well the research. And I know your colleagues uh, in the Congress are interested in evidence. Community health centers save the federal government money in the long run through prevention, through primary care, through managing complex illnesses, dental care, behavioral health, and all of this ultimately uh, helps to save money for the federal government and improve health in the United States overall. How can we help more of your colleagues actually learn about and understand this yeah. return on the investment? You know, I can recall we had a session in 
Middletown and people who came and talked about how the community health center changed their lives, what it did for them. And, and I will say this though, there is a really a support in the Congress for the community health centers. I, I, I think people have uh, begun to understand what it is that you do and that you are the primary care for so many millions of people in this country. And I believe it is the stories that people can tell to talk about how the centers have been pivotal in their lives and the lives of their families and making sure they have the counseling, you know, the dental care, the physical, you know, care, the, the problems that people have faced with opioids in our communities and that uh, the community health centers have been pivotal in that area. Again, uh, with families came up and spoke about the issues and the kind of help that healthcare centers could provide. And what we need to do is to look at what are the wraparound services? And you can tell me, how are we doing in rural parts of America? Do we need more in the area of transportation that gets people to these, to these efforts? What kind of, of, of services do people need in order to take full advantage of the services that you can provide. We need to build on the experience that you have and how do we make it better? I say this about the, uh, about the child tax credit. I, I, I haven't seen the program work as well as the child tax credit. January, it was in the, in the American Rescue Plan. March, we voted on it. July, the monthly payments started going on. Nobody believed we could do it monthly. By the end of December, November, 3.8 million kids lifted out of poverty. Hunger numbers decreased. And now I say this is a similar parallel for the community health centers. This is a success story. So where are we building on this success to ensure that you can do what you're doing, but expand what you're doing for families? In the same way I feel about the child tax credit, how do we build on this success? Well, you not only feel about it, but for 20 years, you have been a, a lone voice in the, in the wilderness many times talking about the child uh, tax credits. So this is uh, just uh, such an important thing. And I know it probably pains you when you hear critics saying that uh, parents might be wasting the, these dollars. Uh, it's really one of the evidence-based policymaking efforts that you have led the charge. I also, though, want to hear your thoughts about the Build Back Better Act and whether or not there's going to be a compromise. Give us some sense of where we are trying to get this concord between the House and Senate. I believe that there is a deal to be had. I think we are going to work through a way in which we have a Build Back Better piece of legislation. As you know, the House is there on, on this. We have some stumbling blocks in the Senate. I think we need to work those through. It may not be that we can do everything that was intended to get done in terms of Build Back Better. But how do we look at what is most immediate for us to be able to tackle? I know that the myriad of health issues uh, and building on the Affordable Care Act, of uh, looking at how we uh, can expand Medicare benefits, to, uh, including hearing aids, how do we deal with um, closing that Medicaid gap, uh, services for seniors, uh, loved ones who are disabled? And I include in this a child tax credit, which, as I said, makes sense. And, and I think with regard to the Affordable Care Act, now that we're talking about people only having to pay 8.5% 8 of their income for premiums, uh, health care is one of the biggest issues that people face today. They want relief. 
We need to bring down the costs of, of the prescription drugs. You, you know, capping the cost of insulin is a very high priority. So we ought to take a look at what we can do, again, in building on structures that are there and trying to uh, look at how we deal with health outcomes of uh, the public health infrastructure. You know, there were a lot of systems that collapsed in the early days of the pandemic. But I think we have to think about the public health infrastructure, which mm-hmm. really collapsed uh, on us. And we cannot let that happen. So let's pick and choose yeah. the areas within Build Back Better that can have immediate effect on people's lives, can have an immediate health impact on people's lives, an immediate economic impact on people's lives, and let's try to move forward. I think we can get to a, con- a, a conclusion on this and get it across the finish line. And I'm going to fight like hell to get that done. We know you are. And I, I want to uh, go back to something you said about uh, in the early days of the pandemic, right? 2020 kind of hit us like a brick wall. And one of the things that a generation of people I think got introduced to was this concept of stimulus relief. And people saw the government step forward uh, on a personal level and on a business level uh, to keep things going until we could right size again. And here we are. And I think the question to you is somebody so concerned with businesses, you live in a very dynamic city, lots of small businesses as well as major players. Will there be another round of, of stimulus belief? Do you believe that the restaurant industry needs stimulus relief at this point? Uh, look, there is talk. I don't have, there's nothing tangible at the moment, but there is uh, talk about another COVID uh, relief package, a supplemental package. Uh, first of all, let, 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 let me step back. I, I don't want, people need to understand the appropriations process as well. The $1.9 trillion, $1.1 uh, 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 you know, billion dollars that we did for the uh, uh, infrastructure. And by the way, the infrastructure bill had has health health pieces in it as well, in terms of mm-hmm. construction and facilities, et cetera. So not to be left behind, build back better. But the money in build back better would be over a 10 year period of time. I want you to think about appropriations. Appropriations is $1.5 trillion every single year. So, which is why I am, trying to be as aggressive as I can in getting the omnibus appropriations bill passed because there is so much in there. I mentioned the 1.8 for community health centers, the money for uh, school-based health centers, the money for the workforce, a public health workforce and the training there. So we cannot forget that and the importance of moving forward. There's money for the CDC is money for NIH. All of these things are in the appropriations bill. I believe that there will be another COVID supplemental bill. And that will take into consideration both the health issues and the economic issues, Margaret, as you pointed out. Yes, relief for restaurants. I don't know if there would be more relief for hospitals. We haven't, you know, the package is not formulated yet. But I will just tell you this, wherever I went after the rescue plan and, uh, and the earlier plans as well, I haven't heard this in years um, from people. Thank you to the federal government. Without the federal government, we couldn't kept our restaurant open. We couldn't keep our business open. Our hospital was going to crash. Our school system wasn't going to uh, make it. A childcare industry 
was going to fall flat on its face here. So when is the last time you've heard people say thank you to the federal government? And it's usually you're irrelevant in our lives. And I think that people have now understood that there is that role for the federal government. And we need to foster and let people continue to believe that with what else that we are trying to do as well. So yes, I believe there will be another COVID relief supplemental package, and we will address the economic issues of businesses and of restaurants and and, and, and others, uh, including uh, vaccines. Uh, and, and probably, you know, some people don't think that this is an important issue, but uh, internationally, uh, we need to not only donate uh, be a donor in terms of vaccines uh, to other uh, countries. We need to help to provide the delivery mechanisms that get shots in the arm of people because the pandemic doesn't know boundaries. If we're not safe internationally, then we're not safe in the United States. It's a great point. And also uh, just uh, highlighting the agreement that happened uh, on the historic infrastructure bill and and that the role that got played by leaders. And I'm just thinking a little bit about uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And I'm wondering if you can, she still has time, talk a little bit about her legacy because it, it requires enormous leadership to get these things done. Uh, obviously you're you're part of that leadership, but talk to us a little bit about right, Speaker no, Pelosi. Speaker- our, our speaker, and you know, I think you, you, you all know who she is and what she's done. And this is not just in the face of a pandemic. You know, there would not be an Affordable Care, Affordable Care Act without Speaker Pelosi. I was there. I was in the room when, you know, there was the willingness to break it up and do this piece or that piece and so forth. She said, no, it goes, it goes together. And it was, uh, one of the biggest issues was over women's health. Her leadership uh, in, in this area is, is really extraordinary. Um, her leadership on the, uh, the infrastructure bill that we just passed or where she's come throughout this pandemic in both the economic pieces and the, the healthcare pieces. I, I characterize her, she has a spine of steel. She really doesn't get, uh, she looks for the way to build consensus to get it done. And that is carrot and stick. Some, she can be as tough uh, as nails, but she is pragmatic. She understands and knows that when you have to step in, you have to compromise so that you get as much as you can get. We have got to make good, you know, in terms of delivery uh, for, the, for the American people. That's who she is. And it, it comes from her own set of values, Margaret and Mark. It really does. Uh, she has been engaged and involved from a family who understands the power of government uh, to do good. That's, uh, and public service is, you, you know, it's, it's in her DNA. Um, and so she knows that the power of the federal government and how it can work to benefit to people in, the, in this country. And she's made it work over and over and over and over again. Well, Congresswoman, you uh, uh, referenced women's health uh, just a mm-hmm. moment ago there. And of course, this is something you've long been associated as a key issue of concern. And uh, we have a feeling where reproductive rights hang in the balance somewhat, but you've taken uh, some proactive steps by introducing the Women's Health Protection Act along with others. Tell our uh, audience more about this legislation. Where does it stand right now? Well, I believe that the Senate is going to take up a vote on the Women's Health Protection Act within the next week or 10 days. Uh, and so it's overwhelming support uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the House. 
And in essence, it codifies Roe v. Wade. Uh, and it just allows uh, women to get the kind of health care that they need and to make the decisions that they need to make about their, their health uh, uh, going forward. There's uh, it's overwhelming support uh, in, in the House for it. Uh, you know, look, I, I think it's always it's tougher in the Senate. And to be very honest, one of the things that we face, you know, there's a three or four vote margin in the House of Representatives today. And it's, you know, it's even in the Senate. So that makes it that makes it difficult. But I think on some of these issues, we can count on some of the uh, uh, Republican members, uh, you know, the Susan Collins, Elisa Murkowski's, et, et cetera, uh, you know, who understand the weight of this this issue. Uh, but it is making sure that women have the access that they need uh, for uh, the health care that they need and that that women's health is put front and center and it is not on a back burner. Uh, and that requires us to really look at how Roe gets codified. And we know the barriers that have sprung up all over the country and with the Supreme Court. But what we can't do is to get deterred. We can't get stopped. We just have to keep going uh, and use this time. You know, time changes the environment, the people who are in charge. That makes a difference in where we come out for the, for the future. So uh, we need to get, and I say this to people around the country, we need to get to folks in the Senate to talk about passing uh, the Women's Health Protection Act. W women's health needs to be where it be as on par with men's health in this country which is something that the Affordable Care Act started doing for the first time in the country's history. Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro was first elected in 1990, has since then served as a representative from the Connecticut's third congressional district, her website, delauro.house.gov, and you'll find her on Twitter at Rosa DeLauro, all in one word. Thank you again for your leadership, for your inspiration, and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. I'm I'm so I'm so delighted to join both of you, and it's lovely to see you. I'm, I miss seeing we you. Miss, I would just we miss hugging you. We... <laughs> I, I know that's that, that's it. You know, and, uh, there's, there's this one last point I would make. When you take a look at the American Rescue Plan, as you take a look at the at the uh, uh, the infrastructure bill and the potential of Build Back Better, this is I think people don't understand the paradigm shift in federal resources. For decades, the federal resources have gone to the richest ones tenth of one percent of people in this country to the richest corporations, many of whom do not pay any taxes. That is now a shift where we are making investments in families, in children, in their health, in their economic wherewithal. And that in and of itself is a change that the federal government has undertaken uh, over this last uh, year. So thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Congresswoman. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Joe Biden has said his administration will provide one billion free at-home rapid COVID-19 tests to Americans starting in late January. Let's take a look at some common questions about these tests. 
The rapid antigen tests are viral tests that check for the presence of SARS-CoV-2 viral proteins in a sample from a person's nose or mouth to help determine if the person is currently infected with the coronavirus. Some of these require a prescription, but the ones people are most familiar with are the self-tests that can be purchased over the counter and can be performed entirely at home with a person taking their own sample and reading out the result within 15 to 30 minutes. The tests are similar to pregnancy tests in that they detect proteins in a specimen using antibodies embedded in a test strip. These types of tests are generally reliable, but they aren't as sensitive as molecular diagnostic tests, such as the PCR test, which can take hours or days for people to get their results. A positive result on a rapid antigen test is very likely to be correct, but a negative test doesn't necessarily mean someone isn't infected. It is not yet known how well rapid antigen tests fare against the Omicron variant although most tests are able to detect it. While some early lab tests suggested a possible reduction in sensitivity, so far clinical testing of patients show the antigen tests perform similarly against Omicron as previous variants. However, Omicron infections appear to have a shorter incubation period or length of time from exposure to first symptom, which could mean people are testing sooner after infection than they were previously. That could make it appear that the tests are less sensitive, even if they aren't. In addition to the federal government's new covidtest.gov website, these rapid tests are sold through retail stores and online, and some local governments are also offering them to their residents. The CDC suggests taking one of these tests before gathering indoors with people from other households. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Each year, more than one million babies die at birth, and another three million die within the first few weeks of life, often from preventable causes. And when babies are born prematurely, the risks escalate. Newborns, and particularly preemies, have a considerable amount of difficulty regulating their own body temperature, and without access to incubators, babies in the third world often succumb to hypothermia. That got former Stanford MBA student Jane Chen thinking, how do we develop a low-cost solution to the problem? My team and I realized what was needed was a local solution, something that could work without electricity, that was simple enough for a mother or a midwife to use, given that the majority of births still take place in the home. We needed something that was portable, something that could be sterilized and reused across multiple babies, and something ultra-low-cost compared to the $20,000 that an incubator in the U.S. costs. Speaking at a recent TED Talk, Chen said that they developed a cocoon-like device called, simply, Embrace, a thermal body wrap that encases the baby and helps regulate body temperature for up to six hours. What you see here looks nothing like an incubator. It looks like a small sleeping bag for a baby. It's waterproof. There's no seams inside, so you can sterilize it very easily. But the magic is in this pouch of wax. 
This is a phase change material. It's a wax-like substance with a melting point of human body temperature, 37 degrees Celsius. You can melt this simply using hot water, and then when it melts, it's able to maintain one constant temperature for four to six hours at a time. After which, you simply reheat the pouch, and it creates a warm micro environment for the baby. Since launching the product in 2010, they estimate that over 150,000 babies' lives may have been saved with the device. A low-cost, high-tech, portable temperature regulator designed to regulate preemies' body temperatures to ensure that they not only survive premature birth but ultimately thrive as well. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli, and I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.